Hey, Hibba, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance's communications manager. Are you back from your short vacation and ready for some building local power? Hey, Chris, I am, and I'm so ready for another episode of Building Local Power. Nothing like hitting the hitting the desk and getting right back to work. Um, I'm excited about this interview. I've been wanting to do it for a while. So today you talk about a really interesting topic, um, and that is preemption. So I think the first important thing to say to our listeners is, what is preemption and why is it important? Hey, listeners, tell us what preemption is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think this is really important. Preemption is basically where the states tell the cities or where a higher unit of government tells a lower level of government that it cannot do certain things. And uh, we're going to talk about a report from the Local Solutions Support Center in which they talk all about this. They define it really well, but just to give people a very brief sense leading into it, I wanted to note, you know, there's 25 states that preempt local minimum wage laws in which a locality would want to set a higher minimum wage than the, the lowest one for the state or the federal government. Uh, 23 states ban local paid sick days. Uh, 44 states ban local regulation of ride-sharing networks. Um, you know, we, we talk frequently about the 20 states uh, that ban or have barriers to community networks. Um, so there's all kinds of different preemption. In some states, some of this is growing, like four states that ban soda taxes. Um, and this is a it's a rapidly growing movement, as we'll talk about in the interview. But the the overall point is that states are telling local governments they cannot legislate or do anything in these issue areas. Right. And like you said, the issue areas are really broad and a lot of them are hot topics that people are paying a lot of attention to, like minimum wage laws, something that you guys touch on as well. I think my other question for you, Chris, is why are we specifically at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance talking about this? Um, to me, the answer is that this is really an issue of power, right? We're talking about decentralizing power, um, and we're essentially arguing that decision-making should be made by the people who are most affected by it. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know if I could even add anything to that because I think you covered it very well. We think decisions should be made locally. We think people should have power over their own lives. And if they are not allowed to legislate on important things or even on, you know, a plastic bag law, <laughs> like it doesn't seem like it should be a major political fight that if a city wants to either have a fee on a plastic bag or to try to discourage them, it seems to me that that should be something that the city should be able to do. So um, that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, I did want to mention that the audio quality at times uh, varies because um, we really wanted to get this interview with Kim. She's doing a lot of traveling right now. And so we caught her and we had a pretty good cell connection. Every now and then there's some seagulls. It's not something that Lisa put in for local flavoring or anything. It's just uh, there's some noises in the background from time to time. But I think that it's a very high quality um, interview and that people should be able to hear it pretty well. Great. So now let's tune in to the interview with Chris and Kim Hatta from the Local Solutions Support Center. All right, so here I am now talking with Kim Haddow, the director of the Local Solutions Support Center, uh, which is located in a city that's spelled New Orleans, but I believe is pronounced <laughs> Nolens. <laughs> Nolens. 
That's right. Welcome to Building Local Power, Kim, uh, something that um, you spend a whole heck of a lot of time doing uh, at the LLS, or excuse me, the LSSC. Um, and I'll try to avoid uh, baiting you with any sort of Saints, Vikings, NFL references or anything like that, since we're supposed to have a rivalry. Let's not dig. That's not. <laughs> You, we're going to talk about um, preemption, and you have released, uh, well, the LSSC has released, and you were one of the, the principal authors, The Growing Shadow of State Interference, Preemption in the 2019 State Legislative Sessions, which is a, a very easy, accessible read to quickly get up to speed on what preemption is, the direction it's going, why we should be concerned, why there's hope and what we can do about it. But we'll talk about that for the rest of our conversation. But let me start by just asking you, what is the Local Solutions Support Center? Okay, so we have been around basically for formally for two years. Um, and this is a national hub. Our, our goal is to connect people who are concerned about the increasing abuse of state preemption to limit local lawmaking. Um, and so there are folks who are working in different issue silos in different states, attacking this differently, and who frankly, you know, don't know that each other exists. So part of our job is to make those connections. The other part of the job is actually to create opportunities to either counter um, this, again, abuse of uh, state preemption, um, figure out ways that we can uh, strengthen local democracy. I mean, you know, what this is is really a, an erosion of local power and local autonomy and local authority. And part of what we are trying to do is not just fight back and be on the defensive, but also think about offensive opportunities to really reinforce the need for local laws and local power. And we should note that that this report that I referenced, uh, which you should check out online, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, uh, was also written by the State Innovation Exchange. So we want to give them right. credit too. Um, Absolutely. So, so I think it's worth noting something. One of the first things that, that I learned when I came to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance 12 years ago was this idea of preemption and the idea that we should have floors, not ceilings. Um, it strikes me that, at least in Minnesota, we like both. Um, but what are we actually talking about when we're talking about floors, not ceilings? So, you know, I think that it's important to remember that preemption has been around as a as a legislative tool for a very and legal tool for a very long time. Right. Um, and uh, frankly, it's been used by both parties and it's been used for good. I mean, you know, what we're seeing now is something very different, which we can talk about in detail in a minute. But what what traditionally has happened is, is that, you know, sometimes the states and cities pass laws that are in conflict and preemption is a way to sort of neaten up and make sure that there is no conflict. Historically, that's one of the ways it's been used. But most often it's been used because the state has set minimum standards or what we call a floor, right? That then the localities are able to build on top of. They can customize to their own local needs and, and constituents. They can strengthen, um, you know, what's required by the state without having to go, you know, this is their authority and their legally their ability to build on what the state has set as a minimum and to go beyond and to enhance what the state has done. But what we are seeing now is not floor preemption. What we're seeing is actually, uh, you know, two things. 
One of them is, is we're seeing preemption um, by the state intended to stop local lawmaking, period, right? So the idea is we're watching an anti-regulatory agenda go forward. And so what, what the states are doing is they don't intend to act, for example, on raising the minimum wage, and they would prefer, thank you very much, that the localities don't either. And so they create what we call vacuum preemption. So they aren't acting on a, some sort of policy remedy, and they are not allowing the, the localities to act either. So they're basically handcuffing the cities uh, and keeping them from acting on a policy, and they're not intending to act either. No minimum wage increase is going to happen in many of these states uh, where the preemption exists. Then the other thing we're seeing is really you know, some very disturbing trends about um, limiting local power, limiting the power not just to uh, in certain realms like over business, but really limiting, um, you know, chilling the initiative. You know, for a long time, cities have been where innovation occurs, right? And solutions are tested uh, before they go broader. I mean, it's very changing uh, set of uh, demographies and populations and needs. I mean, cities are on the front line. They, ha- they don't have any choice but to come up with solutions. And what's happening now is this form of preemption is limiting their ability to pass local laws, and frankly, punishing them for initiative. Right. That punishment seems to be something that's also been new. And, and I think we should get into that. One of the things that I want to note to begin with, though, is that the law on this is, I would say, unfortunately, pretty clear. Um, and so when we're talking about this, you and I aren't debating whether or not states have the right to do this. Um, under the system we have in the United States, states have broad authority um, because cities are considered subdivisions of the state. And so the state can do whatever it wants. We're talking about the wisdom and the, and what happens as a result of this. And I think that's worth being clear about with uh, listeners as we get started. Well, you know, actually, let me push back on that, because I frankly think there are two things going on here. One of them is what has historically been the custom, right? And so for a very long time, states and cities worked in partnership, right? There was a collaborative, uh, and, and, and there was certainly an allowance for local tailoring of laws, as we just talked about. State would establish a floor, and then the localities could go customize it or make it something that applies uniquely to themselves. Um, and it reflected the values and customs and culture of their own unique communities. That has been the custom for a very long time. Uh, that is what we're seeing this break in norms, uh, as we are seeing a break in, you know, in democratic norms you know, all over the place in the last decade, but particularly since 2016. Right. It's a, it's a rough decade to be a norm, I think. <laughs> <laughs> very funny. But the other thing is that, frankly, there are more powers that cities have. I mean, in some places, charter cities have actually very proscribed uh, powers in their constitution. And what we've been seeing is an overreach or an overstepping by states into that area. Um, and, you know, we see case law that comes down on both sides. So cities have powers. And the states, in some instances, are actually overstepping the constraints on uh, where the limits are on their power. So cities have rights. Right. I agree with that. And, and I think, if anything, I would like to see more rights, more home rule authority and that sort of a thing. So I I wouldn't change anything that you say. You're, you're right in that I painted too stark of a picture. Um, mm-hmm. Nonetheless, I think cities are somewhat at a disadvantage in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and now this is why we see quotes, one that you highlighted from Victor L. Crawford, former Tobacco Institute lobbyist, who says, we could never win at the local level. The, the tobacco companies, he's saying, could never win at the local level. 
and then he says the first priority has always been to preempt the field. What you're talking about is that things that would be very unpopular at the local level, they can get through at the state level and they can stop so they don't have to worry about defending themselves at the local level. Correct. Um, and I think that works in, in a very pragmatic way and also in a very political way. So in a pragmatic way, I mean, think about it. The National League of Cities recognizes 19,000 cities, towns, townships, and, you know, you know, local divisions of, of uh, jurisdiction. So, you know, at the end of the day, the tobacco company's not going to go uh, city by city and town by town to fight for what they want. There is an efficiency in working only in 50 state capitals. Um, so that's part of what's driving this. But the other thing is, frankly, you know, it is, you know, there is a lot of activism at the local level. Communities are very well organized in many, many places to fight back in a way that states aren't. Um, and so I think that what there is a real political advantage, not even talking about the fact that there is obviously, um, you know, lobbying that goes on and campaign contributions that go on. And, you know, but part of what happens is it's just the way that the organizational culture works is it's much harder for these, these industries to win at the local level than at the state level. Now, I want to make an argument that goes against pretty much everything we stand for at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And, and that would be um, an argument that I would make just for the purpose of this conversation that, well, let's say that you have a, a big corporation that wants to do business in a state and it doesn't want to have to deal with all of those local laws. Um, why is it a problem? Isn't it a problem to have a patchwork in a modern economy where we have such big companies that are trying to do business everywhere? Well, what you call a patchwork, I call, you know, localism, right? The job of local government is to represent what the unique views and values and culture of its own community are, right? So, you know, if you live in a state, you know, that it's, I mean, look at the difference in cities in one state. I mean, look at the difference between, you know, El Paso and, and uh, Galveston, just in Texas, for example. I mean, major differences, both in history, in culture, in population, um, in industry. Those differences, those variance, variations need to be, and it previously have been allowed to be reflected in laws. Why should one size fit all? Um, and in many instances, it doesn't. And it is actually a detriment to try to force you know, rural communities to do the same things that work in urban communities and vice versa, right? Um, you know, you have, I think the gun laws are a very interesting example of how this is within states. I mean, you look at a state like Pennsylvania, right, which has a very rural center and very urban, you know, bookends, both in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Different needs given the urban population, the, you know, those cities in Pennsylvania want the ability to regulate guns to keep schools safer. The rural communities are arguing this is a way of life. Guns are part of our culture. We don't want imposition from Harrisburg or in, at, on our right to own guns and carry them openly and all that other stuff. So I just think there is variation within states that should be reflected and allowed to be reflected in, law, in local laws. Yeah, one of the things that I think about, and this comes back to really my beliefs, um, is my true beliefs, I should say, is that if I look at Missouri, and I thought about Missouri because they're having a fight over minimum wage in Kansas City, um, and, and I felt like the conservative lawmakers that wanted to preempt wanted to have it both ways. Now, if, if I just step back and I think to myself, should the minimum wage be the same in Kansas City as in a town of a thousand people in a farming you know, region of Missouri? 
obviously the answer is no. There's, there's radically different costs of living. There's different opportunities. I don't think it makes sense to have the exact same minimum wage. And so it strikes me that Kansas City should be able to set a higher wage that's more fitting with um, any, everything from basic facts that we can agree on regarding cost of living to um, where they believe, um, you know, an affordable wage may be, which is more, uh, you know, something based on more values may come into that. Um, but we see the lawmakers from Jefferson City basically saying, no, we we think there should be a single minimum wage across. And we're doing that mainly because we don't like Kansas City and we want to keep them from doing something we don't want. There is, you know, frankly, a lot of uh, animosity in, in many states between the largest city and the legislature or the rural and urban um, populations. But I would say, you know, in You've actually put your uh, put your finger on it because, you know, for us, you know, we're looking at who decides. I mean, that's the core question, right? Like, it's not really whether you're for or against raising the minimum wage. We can debate the merits of that separately. But Kansas City should be able to divide to decide for itself, just as Jefferson City or Poplin or any other place should be able to decide for itself, right? What works? What doesn't work? What's onerous? What's affordable? Those are things that people within their own community can gauge. And what this presumes is two things. One is the localities aren't up to the task, or B, they're going to go in a direction we, that the state legislature, politically disagree with. A lot of this is just plain about politics. Well, and there's one other thing that you raise, and I think it's hard to disentangle, but that doesn't mean that we should run away from it. And that's, there's an issue of race. You know that legislatures tend to be more white than uh, than the states that they're representing um, in, in most cases. And a lot of the cities that they're preempting, uh, particularly in Alabama, where I believe you notice this, they tend to be uh, filled with people of color, in particular uh, African-Americans. Um, and so there's a, a real dynamic there as well. Oh, an incredible dynamic. And I think that if you just look at where the preponderance of preemption has occurred around minimum wage, paid sick days, predictive scheduling, ban the box, you know, these are all policies that women need, people of color need, low-wage workers need. Those folks disproportionately are affected by preemption. And clearly, I mean, we're living in a play, you know, at a time when still over 83% of state lawmakers are white. Over, you know, somewhere around 76% of them, I think, is the latest count, are male. And so we're still living with this white male control over other populations. And to think that that is not animating some of what we're seeing would be naive. Now, let's talk a little bit about the direction. You note that preemption has grown every year since 2010. Uh, what have you been seeing within the past 10 years more generally? Basically, if you look at 2010, really a couple things uh, sort of converged. One of them was the Citizens United uh, Supreme Court decision. And people tend to think about this playing out, how it plays out in federal races, in congressional races, but truly had a deep impact on what happened in states because the Supreme Court decision basically opened the portal to corporate giving, undisclosed corporate giving. And what you saw was that also affected giving laws in at least 24 states, according to the National Council of State Legislatures. They had to go in and change their laws to be in compliance with the, compliance with the Supreme Court. So what opened the door to corporate giving federal in federal races also opened the door at, in terms of contributions to state campaigns, state efforts. One of the things that drives me nuts is that one of the things we saw in Citizens United was this claim, as long as we have disclosure, 
everything's going to be okay. And what do we see? We see Tempe voting 91% to just disclose campaign contributions in their municipal races, and the state blocked it. Oh, yeah. We, we, see, that the, we see that when there was um, an issue in the federal government to deal with disclosure, not to limit what some people view as free speech, uh, which is money, um, which I think is, is very problematic, and I don't think our founders would have agreed with at all. But nonetheless, just to disclose it. Every single Democrat voted for it. Every single Republican tried to stop it, um, including anonymous holds that the, the media program on the media did a great job of covering. And so we did see this idea that, oh, this dark money won't be a problem because we'll disclose it. But that's just totally being attacked. Oh, well, and the other thing is, I mean, let's remember there is a really concerted effort on the right, much of it led by the Koch brothers and others, to say that, you know, this is, a, you know, to disclose is a deny, you know, is an infringement of free speech. I mean, they are trying to make it a First Amendment right. These are people who are acting within their rights. And, uh, you know, they don't have to be disclosed. And this has been a very strong argument since uh, Citizens United. So I interrupted you. You were talking about uh, 2010, what led to the rise of preemption. One of those things is this rise of dark money. So what else was there? The open gate and the open door on corporate giving. The other thing was really looking at, you know, basically the Republicans just smoked it um, in the 2010 midterms. You know, they went from, you know, nine to 21 trisectas, where, which means that they had control over the governor's race and both houses of the legislature in 21 states. Um, they saw over 650, you know, uh, seats flipped to their advantage. I mean, that is the largest takeover since the mid 30s by a single party of state, uh, state seats. And so, you know, frankly, they, they increased the money they had. Because of Citizens United, they increased their political muscle because of their wins in the midterms. And then I think people need to understand that there was a body of bills, model bills that had already been worked through and, and were part of the anti-regulatory agenda that had been created by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a industry-funded uh, organization that about one in four state lawmakers belong to, which really is a bill mill. It creates model bills, many of them about preemption um, and the effort to consolidate power at the state. And so not only did they have money and now they had, uh, you know, uh, political muscle, but they also had a machine. They had a, you know, they had a distribution network with bills already sitting on the shelves. I mean, people don't maybe understand that some of the bills we're seeing now, the minimum wage preemption, some of the core uh, pieces of the sanctuary city bills are actually have been ALEC bills that have been around for 10 years or more. I think one of the things that's worth noting is that this is a part of a much larger issue that you're well aware of. But I, I, want, I want to make sure people understand, because sometimes there's this perception that, well, if we have a bunch of model bills, then can't we do the same thing? And the issue is that when one of the ALEC legislators uses those bills, they get money for their campaign contributions from very powerful interests that want to enact it. And so, um, you know, they have a whole ecosystem that they have built in order to spread those bills around in, in ways that are, it's important to know that you know, ALEC is, is one piece. It's a very important piece and it's a source, but it, it, it can't exist in a vacuum by itself. You know, I would highly recommend to your listeners to read State Capture. Uh, this is a new book that is really looking at what, what is called the Troika, right? So it's ALEC that creates the bills. There is the State Policy Network, which is a, a, a collaboration of think tanks um, that provide academic cover, talking points, 
you know, those kinds of, you know, here's the reason and the justification for this. And then there is Americans for Prosperity, which is the grassroots implementation of this. It is, as you say, a very well-constructed, well-funded ecosystem. So I'm going to take a, a quick break. We're going to we're going to come back. And now that we've laid the field, we're going to talk more about what we can do about it. At the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, uh, we are a nonprofit. We're, we're deeply encouraged by your positive reviews. I think we just got our 55th five-star review on the Apple ecosystem. And uh, we'd love to have your help to help us do more work in these fields to reverse preemption. Um, and you can help us out at ilsr.org slash donate. That's ilsr.org slash donate. Um, or give us good reviews, spread the word around, um, help us out in general. One of the things that your report does is it provides hard facts in terms of um, the number of states that are um, enacting preemptions. And I just I want to pull out a few for so people have an example. We have uh, 25 states that are preempting local minimum wage laws, 15 states ban local plastic bag bans, uh, four states ban soda taxes. And uh, anyone who's listened to, to me has probably heard that there's about 20 states that ban municipal broadband or have significant hurdles in front of it. Um, so those are some of the issues that we see a lot, but you cover all of the issues. You mentioned uh, guns are a big issue. Um, you know, certainly a lot of these issues around sick time, um, a minimum wage I mentioned, but um, those are the issues that have been um, coming up a lot. Um, but we're going to talk more um, about uh, what's happening, why, uh, what we're seeing right now that's, help, that's, that's hopeful. <laughs> I was going to say helpful, but hopeful is a better word. Um, what happened in, in Colorado that gives us some hope right now? Well, I mean, I think what happened is, is that, frankly, the uh, legislature flipped um, and that you saw that there was uh, advocates had now uh, a set of lawmakers who were interested in repealing preemption. I mean, one of the things we've seen this session that we've never seen is just an enormous number of preemption repeal bills filed in 13 states. There were bills to repeal minimum wage preemption, which is huge, again, and unprecedented. We have not seen that before. Many of these bills were message bills. You know, the idea is saying, hey, we're out here. We object to what's happening in our state. We're just going on record with that objection. But in Colorado, Colorado this session in, uh, earlier this year became the first state to legislative repeal minimum wage. They also repealed a, uh, a ban on local tobacco taxes that actually had been on the books since the late 70s. And most surprisingly, they actually repealed a preemption on localities weighing in on where oil and gas development can occur in their communities. Um, and so, I mean, a shift in power, a structural change made all of that possible. And as you know, we saw also in Arkansas and uh, an encouraging sign, which was really the first repeal of a significant part of a broadband uh, preemption. So, you know, I I am very optimistic. I think that perhaps this uh, preemption trend has been overplayed in some of these places and that folks are recognizing the consequences and costs of localities not being able to act in so many policy realms. One of the things that I love to see coming from the, the upper Midwest here was uh, in Wisconsin, uh, the new Democratic governor uh, came in with a very strong anti-preemption approach. He made it a part of his campaign. Well, we're, we have been in contact with Governor Evers, um, who has really just said, I have a hostile legislature. I, there is not much I can move legislatively. But as an executive, 
using my administrative abilities and my executive powers, I am going to try to undo as much of the state preemption as I can and to just unleash uh, the ability of localities to make their own laws and decisions. So we at, at Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and, and especially on building local power, we really try to avoid falling into sort of tribal um, red versus blue discussions. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, we now the Minnesota is the only state that has a divided legislature at this point, um, and it's divided by one person or two people in the Senate. I, I forget if there was a change. Um, and so we have a lot of states that have entirely blue democratic legislature. Um, you know, is, are those areas in which we're seeing more of the repeals or, you know, is, is this something that is truly, uh, very tribal red versus blue, or is it more complicated than that? I think it's very much more complicated than that. I mean, we see, I mean, let's be very clear. We see preemption also being used by, uh, triple blue states. You know, uh, for example, if you look at Maine, they passed a paid family and medical leave bill that includes preemption. In Oregon, the same thing. Um, you know, so we see, you know, Rhode Island passed a uh, minimum wage uh, increase a couple years ago, a blue state that also included preemption. Maryland also included preemption on its paid sick days bills passed last year. So it's not, you know, these are traditionally blue states. It's it's not that simple. It's not just red versus blue. There is, this plays out in a lot of ways. And I and as we just said, I mean, Arkansas is a pretty red state, and yet they repealed part of their broadband law. So I, I'm encouraged. I just think it really does come down to, wait, you know, you're hamstringing us so much. I mean, when you can't have access to what the internet provides, right? You know, you are putting communities and businesses and healthcare providers, you know, you're putting many communities at a disadvantage. And so people are starting to like, oh, wait, the cost of doing this is really large. And now that we can actually see what the what the consequences are, we need to peel this back. So I, I think this is something I warned you that I was going to I was going to throw some Hayek at you, uh, Friedrich Hayek, the um he wrote a, the book, The Road to Serfdom, which is a very anti-socialist book from the 40s that is in many ways um, the, a Bible of the libertarian movement. Uh, I also actually happen to think that he's a very clear thinker and, 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 um, and very anti-centralization, which is where uh, his uh, anti-socialist outlook came from. But I, I pulled out two quotes that I wanted to to read um, that I thought were um, useful in terms of discussing why this preemption is such a bad idea, uh, because a lot of the people who have been anti-socialist um, have recognized that that modern society, even 75 years ago was so complicated. It's hard for one person or one body to make all the different decisions and decide everything. So one of the things that, that he wrote is that there would be no difficulty about efficient control or planning were conditions so simple that a single person or board could effectively survey all the relevant facts. Uh, and the second quote that I, I thought would be useful is a little bit longer. So long as the power that is delegated is merely the power to make general rules there may be very good reasons why such rules should be laid down by local rather than by central authority. The objectionable feature is that the delegation is so often resorted to because the matter in hand cannot be regulated by general rules, but only by the exercise of discretion in the decision of particular cases. And that's basically a way I would sum all that up by saying stuff is complicated. <laughs> and, and, you know, 100 people or 500 people or, you know, I maybe I looked up to 5,000 people in New Hampshire where every other person is in the state government, um, the legislative chamber. 
they simply cannot know what happens from the smallest towns to the biggest towns. And, and so I, I find that if I just, if I ignore all the different issues that regarding equity, um, and I just think about this from a purely utilitarian standpoint of who can make the right decisions to move us forward, it is not possible for the state legislature to decide these things for all these different towns and cities. I mean, one of the things we've done when we've we've done our uh, research and polling is is that there is more trust for the local uh, elected officials than in any other level of government, and, and part of it is is because these are folks who live in the community. They're sharing the same problems. They're seeing the same uh, you know uh, possible solutions. Um, and I do think that at the community level, you know, and at the local level, there is the ability and ha- and traditionally and historically it's proven to be the ability to be the best folks to deal with local problems. Uh, you know, I don't think that's rocket science. And it is not, it does not make sense when you have someone a thousand miles away, as Tallahassee is, you know, from parts of Florida, um, to actually deal with what's going on in the local neighborhood. It just doesn't make sense. So now that I got that out, I should also note that um, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is not <laughs> necessarily pushing Hayek on anyone. Um, there's certainly people here who probably don't have the treatment in as high regard as I do. Let me ask you, if we go back to the report, what are some of the trends we need to make sure we note on? You know, what we saw in the 2019 session is frankly uh, pretty much what we've seen in uh, the sessions since 2011. We saw a huge number of preemption bills filed in some states, 62 preemption bills filed in Texas, 34 in Florida, my Lord. Then we saw what we have seen historically, which is the same bill introduced, this is the ALEC play, right, which is introducing the same bill in several legislatures at the same time and just being happy if one or two of them passes because it aggregates to the larger chipping away of uh, local ability to move some policies. So that's how you get to half the states having minimum wage preemption and 23 of the states having paid sick days preemption. Every session just adding a state or two, adding a state or two. I mean, frankly, that's what we saw around the ban on plastic bag bans. You know, they added, you know, four states this year. That's a lot. Um, And so, and same with e-cigarettes. They added three states this year that prohibit local action on e-cigarettes. So the other thing we saw is, again, the industry getting its way. I mean, if you just look at the two uh, examples I mentioned, you have the plastic bag industry and you have Juul and Big Tobacco coming in and really working their will in the legislature and they have had continued success. And I, I think it's worth noting why they can come back year after year after year. We sometimes think of this as the zombie problem, which is that you know even if it takes them 20 years, if they win, they will still save money because of the way that they're able to either uh, do business in a, in a lower cost way or extract more resources resources from communities. And so they have an incentive every year to put it in, even if they have a low chance of winning, because they can save so much money or make so much more money if they win in in any one year out of 20 or 30. Yep, absolutely. Other trends we continue to see that we talked about a little bit earlier was the punitive attachments to um, preemption bills. We see these a lot around guns. We see these a lot around uh, sanctuary city bills. I mean, frankly, we had several states that passed uh, uh, sanctuary city bills, uh, including Florida. There are three states that passed sanctuary city bills. All of them included a punishment for cities in the form of a, a cutoff of state funding to localities that, re- that defied ICE or refused to, de- to sign the detainer agreement. Um, so we continue to see punishment attached to preemption. Um, we also see... Uh, 
frankly, this attack, this increasing attack on core powers of cities. I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, the overturning of Tempe's ability to regulate its own municipal elections. I mean, there are some core powers that have historically always been the area of cities and do not have, you know, a real question about the state's ability to regulate, to go to your earlier question, and, you know, the state's interest in regulating. So you're looking at things like municipal elections, you're looking at the contracting ability between uh, local governments and the contractors they hire to do work for them. You're looking at local zoning laws. I mean, if you really want to see an area where the state has gotten into micromanaging, I mean, look at local zoning laws, whether it is Airbnb or, you know, a, a prime example is Miami passing an inclusionary zoning law, you know, which basically requires affordable housing to be attached to a development inside the city, a, a market valued development. And it was immediately within in like several months preempted by the Florida legislature. What is the interest of the state in whether affordable housing is built in Miami? So, I mean, you really start to look at, you know, this sort of overreach. You know, there's an understanding here that there's an industry, the real estate industry is concerned about. There, you know, there's an understanding that this is a way to keep affordable housing units down. But at the end of the day, what is the state's interest in whether a local city decides where and what kind of housing it's going to build? Uh, we're going to see a lot of that uh, in this coming session in 2020. There'll be a lot of, lot of, I think, I predict, efforts to repeal uh, rent regulations and, I think, fights over what the state interest is in local zoning. Well, with the rise of some of the anti-preemption efforts, the, the kind of movement that we want to see where preemption is being rolled back, what are the best ways that we can move in that direction to, to make sure that our, our local governments have more authority to solve problems themselves? So I think what you, you know, we, we have talked about, you know, some of this is about a structural change. Has there been a shift in who's in control of the legislature? But, I, you know, what we have been investing in at the Local Solutions Support Center is really building cross-issue coalitions. You know, we look at Florida and Texas and, and Arizona and other places where we've been working with cross-issue coalitions that we are helping to support. And, you know, in Florida is a very good example. I mean, the, the, the groups include everything from, you know, the LGBTQ groups uh, in Florida to the Sierra Club to women's organizations to, you know, actually looking at the Municipal League and the Association of Counties. Folks who understand that this is issue by issue, if you take preemption issue by issue, it's a death by a thousand cuts, right? It's only when you aggregate it and you look at the erosion of local democracy, the ability, you know, undoing the ability of local governments to re reflect the views and values of their own constituents. Um, and you look at the damage that has done and the consequences that has had, you know, that there is a reason to come together and actually object to preemption. And it goes back to the earlier uh, point I made. It, you know, we may not all agree on who should have a minimum wage increase, but we all can agree the decision should be with the localities. And from locality to locality, the answer may be different. And that is allowed in a democracy. That is a reflection of different histories, cultures, industries, economies. That is exactly what we are trying to protect here. And so this cross-issue coalition, really, I mean, Florida is a great example. They were successful in actually killing some bills, in weakening some of the bills, um, and helping folks understand, I think, that they actually put some lawmakers back on their heels and saying, what is this set of unusual bedfellows who've come together um, and starting to recognize there is an overriding concern, you know, that really submerges and sublimates individual agendas. When localities can't pass laws 
agendas be damned. You can't move. You can't move at the state. You can't move at the locality. You have a common purpose here. The other thing we're starting to see are, you know, there are sort of other pieces of good news. We're starting to see um, champions emerge. I mean, we talked about uh, Wisconsin Governor Evers earlier. Um, we are actually starting to see uh, mayors like Mayor Perduto in Pittsburgh really step up and say, enough. You know, guns is a really good example. I mean, Perdido is animated by his inability after the synagogue shooting to increase gun safety in his own community. You look at the lawmakers in Florida who have gone to court um, and to say 30 localities have gone to court to say, wait, after the Parkland shooting, there is nothing we can do to make our schools safer because we are preempted. Not only are we preempted, we will be punished if we try to enact gun safety laws in Florida. And I am talking about personal punishment, civil suits, criminal suits, uh, fines, jail time. I mean, you know, it is particularly uh, punitive in Florida. Yeah, so, and that also feeds into the fact that there have been court cases. Those 30 mayors who challenged the punitive aspects of the gun preemption law in Florida won. Um, their case earlier this year, but now the state is appealing. That is a positive trend. We have not seen that. That punitive aspect of the gun preemption law has been in place for t- since 2011. We are also seeing additional court cases that are starting to recognize the state is overreaching. We've seen positive cases on pesticides and the assertion of local control um, in Maryland, where Montgomery County went in and required more uh, uh, about which pesticides can be used and more safety structures that had to be in place than the state allowed, and they've just won in court. Uh, same thing with the ability of Pittsburgh to enact its own paid sick days laws. So we're starting to see the courts turn around. And then the other thing you talked about earlier, I mean, and it's something near and dear to our heart, is we are partnering with the National League of Cities. We at the LSSC work with a panel of incredible local governance um, and legal experts uh, to rewrite home rule. It has not been looked at since 1953, um, and, and we have been working for the last year on revising the principles, rewriting the provisions that actually make it clear where the lines are, what authority cities have, you know, because frankly, I mean, some of this is interpretive. Some of this is subjective. Some of this has been about a tug of war session by session, issue by issue, you know, and I think it's exhausting and it's also expensive and it's also confusing. So really having a holistic approach to here, you know, this is a model we could use across the country that really makes it clear where the limits are, what city rules and where the state does. Um, and, and really looking at a very different systematic approach to fixing this problem. For people who are interested, you mentioned the Florida, the 30 mayors. We interviewed uh, Mayor Andrew Gillum uh, about two years ago, I want to say it was, about some of these issues before we knew how they would wrap up. So um, we talked about preemption quite a bit in that call for building local power. He's quite the champion. He is. Um, so let me ask you if there's anything else, because we've, we've run out of time, but I um, also want to give you a chance to make sure that uh, we've touched on all the topics you, uh, you think are important. I, I, people definitely need to read the report. But what else would you highlight? You know, I would say that I do think after almost a decade of, um, you know, this happening in state after state, uh, you know, I feel like the, what our contribution has been is to sort of connect the dots here and to show people, you know, <laughs> we talked to the Flagstaff Mayor uh, Carl Evans and she said, wow, I'm so happy to hear this. We thought we had the corner on crazy in, in Arizona. 
No. I mean, <laughs> what we are seeing, this increase in preemption, it's happening everywhere. And frankly, part of our job is to educate people that, you, you know, this is not unique to your state. This is not unique to issues you care about. This is happening everywhere. It is happening quite deliberately. There is a, there is a national deregulatory agenda that's being pushed. Um, and frankly, you know, uh, that there are steps that can be taken, that you, now you know that this is not unique to you, that this same bill and model bill has been introduced in many places. You know, it is really time to figure out how collectively we can stop this and repeal this and regain and claw back the powers that actually localities used to have. Not just that, but the partnership that used to exist between states and cities. I would really like to see that. And I'm really glad to be working with you to remove all this preemption and state interference, right? Exactly. We can run a little bit long for this. I get to <laughs> make these sorts of decisions, I guess. You know, I think we also have to be willing. And I, this is a, I want to I phrase this in a way that's careful because this is not the problem that we face. We face a problem with very powerful corporations that are running this uh, preemption campaign and in this whole um, the whole larger anti deregulatory campaign you've mentioned. At the same mm -hmm. time, to live in a society in which we are going to really oppose preemption, we also have to be willing to say, "I may not want to live in that town over there because they make decisions differently from me." And I think about this when it comes to guns a lot in ways that, again, I don't think everyone would agree with me, but. I live in the city of St. Paul, and I actually happen to live um, less than a mile from a police precinct. I will not have a gun in my house because I understand that the statistics are it will probably end much worse than it would be useful in any way that would be helpful for me. At the same time, if I lived where my in-laws live, which is more than 20 minutes from any place like a grocery store or any place that you know could potentially really offer help, I probably would have a gun in my house in that situation. And so I think we have to recognize that we need to have different rules for different places and be okay even if we don't always agree with them. Well, amen. I mean, that is why local government exists, as I said, to reflect the views and values and unique circumstances uh, you know, within each community. We are not a homogeneous set of states, and we are not a homogeneous set of communities. And that's the beauty of America, right? God bless us. We accommodate a broad swath of very different people and very different beliefs and very different cultures. You know, and the, you know, the fact that this division or this uh, partisanship that it now exists in our nation is frankly a heartbreak. Thank you so much, Kim. We could go on for a very long time. And I uh, would love to have you back on as we have more wins to talk about. That would be thrilling. That would be exciting. Thank you for having me. So, Hibba, do you feel like you have gained a new understanding of preemption that you're going to lead your life differently uh, having heard that interview? Definitely. One of the most life-changing interviews I think I've ever heard. <laughs> I like that. I appreciate that. I'm about to go on my own little vacation here, so I'm going to carry that with me and think that I've, I've materially altered your life with the words that I asked Kim Haddow. So I, I hope I actually on a, on a serious note, I should say that I really do hope Pete, that people uh, you know, are taking this seriously. We try to have fun with it, but we take it very seriously. And I really appreciate you all listening to hear this wrap up banter. So have a great day, everyone. I'm going on vacation to catch a little bit of the rest of the summer. Thank you all for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find all the links to what we discussed today at ILSR.org by clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. You can also help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and gets us great guests like Kim. 
Please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and myself, Hippo Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Hippo Murray, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Thank you.